Welcome back to the Behind the Business podcast, the pod, the music industry podcast, where I talk to anybody and everybody within the music business in the UK about them, what they do, how they got to where they are, and what drives them to do it. Uh, this week's podcast is with the current VP of A&R at Cobalt's label services business, AWOL, Matt Riley. I have known Matt for a number of years, mainly from the world of sync um, and mainly from his time at Hospital Records, the drum and bass record label that he spent a large chunk of time at before he joined AWOL. Um, we talk a bit about his time at Hospital Records and also about the world of synchronisation along with what he's been doing currently at AWOL. Um, we also talk about how he got into music, his accidental start at being a promoter, um, and then, as I said, his time at Hospital Records and then moving into into AWOL and some of the stuff he's been doing over there. It was a really great chat. Really, really appreciative of Matt welcoming me to the staggering Cobalt London offices. Uh, so really big thank you to, to Matt for getting involved with the podcast for this, uh, this initial season. Um, it was a really great chat, one of my faves, actually. So I'm going to shut up and here's my conversation with Matt Riley from AWOL. Currently, as we sit here, it's just after the bank holiday weekend. Mm -hmm. So, just been at Reading Festival on Friday, where we had the Wombats playing, who I signed about a year ago. They were doing really well, and a new band called the Night Cafe, who were great. We had Rex Orange County there on Saturday, who was killing it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, everything's great in AWOL world. It's been a crazy journey, really, from I think Cobalt bought AWOL about five years ago, maybe six years ago, and it's was the kind of distribution side of Cobalt label services, and over that time it's, it's kind of grown into this beast that is now everything on recorded music is AWOL and Cobalt label services. We do that sort of stuff, but that doesn't exist anymore as a brand. AWOL is kind of... So you smushed it, it all got smushed together? If you can imagine, yeah. AWOL out, like, grew into this thing, like an amoeba-like thing, home of new artists that just kind of blew up. And, mm -hmm. and then actually all the exciting new things were coming through there. And also it helped because Cobalt has been around sort of 15, 16 years and is, or maybe even longer than that, and is primarily known for being a publisher. Yep. Uh, and then now for all of recording music to be AWOL makes it more simple for people to understand that if you're AWOL, your records, and if you're Cobalt, you're publishing probably. So it was, it was trying to not so much separate it, but give it an identity. Yeah, make sure it's its own thing and it has yeah. its own lane and it has its own identity and culture. Because the cultures of Cobalt across the board are, are all about transparency and artists owning their own copyrights and stuff like that. But the culture within AWOL is slightly different to Cobalt Publishing because of one being a record company and one being a publishing company and, and the way those companies operate are very different. Mm -hmm. Which I'm, maybe we will get into. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we will. No, it was just, again. It was we haven't seen one another for, for a wee while. It's been a, at least a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I was just kind of seeing how things are going. Uh, 
Reading Festival, what is it, how was it, what, what, what is the festival like these days? I think the last time I went was 2004. Oh, I think Reading and Leeds, primarily known as a rock festival now, is very... Is it still? Is, no, not so much. It's responded, I, I guess, to what is happening and, and this sort of breaking down of, of genres and and your identity. I remember when, well, probably when we were growing up as teenagers, you couldn't like Rage Against the Machine and Britney Spears. That wouldn't be okay. <laughs> but now you totally yeah. can, and it's totally okay. And, and, and the lineup probably reflected that. You'd have, you know, Fall Out Boy, but Brockhampton and the Wombats, but then Kendrick Lamar, you know, it's very... I remember the year that <laughs> Daphne and Celeste played on the same stage as Slipknot, and they were kind of the joke band. Yeah, whereas I think you've got somewhere. some of that stuff happening, not in terms of in, in terms of this, the kind of level of acts, but different, completely culturally, what you see as different things all living in the same space, and that's kind of the mashup of the internet and youth culture mm -hmm. right now. That, that kind of and it was a good vibe. Yeah, I think so. And all that I mean, the weather was a bit crap, but I think the line kind of a festival. In the the lineup could have been better. I think they probably lived. It was a little bit complacent this year because there was no Glastonbury, so they probably thought there's 170,000 people who want, want to go to a festival, it's probably going to be easier to sell out. Right. But that's my own cynicism more than any evidence. <laughs> and out of the, the acts that you look after that were there, who would you say was the standout of the weekend? Um, I, I think, uh, I actually wasn't there on the Saturday, but I watched it on TV and a lot of our team were there, but, but Rex Orange County seems to be just still living in this amazing moment of people discovering him and, and mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's living the dream at the moment, so I'll probably say that. Music meant a lot to me as a kid, you know, from just growing up with my dad playing me Jimi Hendrix or Neil Young to the most important probably musical moment of me growing up was when I used to read this magazine called Select, which was kind of like slightly highbrow Q <laughs> magazine, right. I would probably describe it as. Somewhere between Q and the face, it would probably like to think of itself. It probably wasn't that cool. Okay. But I was about 14 when I read that, and they used to give like reviews out to all the Britpop bands that I liked, like you know Oasis and stuff like that, because I was a kid growing up in Nottingham, and that's the sort of bands you were going to like. And one time, they gave a five-star review to this, what I presumed was a Britpop band called the Beastie Boys. Uh, I had no idea who the Beastie Boys were, but nothing had ever got a five-star review before, so I asked my gran if she would buy me the Beastie Boys record, presuming, yeah, they're a Britpop band or something. And then- They were not. They were not, and I found hip hop and that kind of, or whatever, I mean, the Beastie Boys are hip hop, but by then the album was Hello Nasty, they, they okay. were doing all sorts of stuff. So that totally opened my eyes into lots of things. Yeah. Probably say that, and Fatboy Slim was actually quite important to me in terms of just getting into that music. But really what happened was then I got turntables and then what really intrigued me was that how Fatboy Slim had these amazing sounds and how the Beastie Boys had these amazing sounds. I actually started reading the small print on the records and realised, hang on a minute, Fatboy Slim didn't come up with that at all. It was actually a sample and actually then starting digging into who, you know. So uh, back that your education, your background is predominantly dance music? No, not really. I mean, I just liked all sorts of things. I think as a kid, you just get into stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I guess the things... Because I got, I couldn't, I didn't want to be in a band and I couldn't sing or anything like that. So yeah, mixing records together did intrigue me. So I, I, I got bought some, well, I got my parents helped me buy some turntables with some family friends. Right. And then, yeah, so I got introduced into 
into that stuff and what caught my sort of imagination was I guess dance music but it, when you're a kid you don't really know what anything is so you'd have a record by the Chemical Brothers or the Beastie Boys or Fatboy Slim and, and you wouldn't ha have any sense of genre or what house music is compared to techno at that point you would yeah. just buy records and gradually I got into lots of different things and started digging into where the where the samples were came, came from and that introduced me to record labels like what are these things that are behind everything I still had no idea what they were or what they really did but I kind of something happened which meant as a teenager I was like oh, I want to be part of this music industry thing whatever that is when when was the transition between I guess being what in your head being a DJ and the business side so, of things when did you first learn about so basically and well stuff like that? I had no idea what any of those things were I think to start with what I did was I what I throughout my levels I didn't go to school as much as I should have done I spent all my time on my turntables and actually got quite good at mixing records and you know it was all right and actually that later in my story was really helpful because I could earn money DJing uh, so when I moved to London that was essential but I then at 18 did a year out working for a charity which is based in Bristol but for some reason I got sent to Swansea to work for a youth charity there where I'd use my DJing skills to teach kids how to DJ and do that sort of thing mm -hmm. whilst I was there I got myself a residency at the Monkey Bar there, which is I think is still there. Um, and as part of it, this sort of what we, me and a friend of mine, Jared, decided we want to have like a positive impact on what's going on in the Swansea nightlife. Realised there was a gap in the market for a drum bass night, so we started a drum bass night and started booking acts. I had no idea what we were doing, but I, I accidentally became a promoter. <laughs> so <laughs> rewind very slightly there. You didn't think I like drum and bass more than anything else, so let's do a drum and bass night. It was a uh, no. This place needs a th this night because it doesn't have one yet. Let's. I think it had one that was on the way down, and the people that were running it were kind of, I don't know, having kids or not. It was the one that was there was called Space Base at the time, and it was all right. There was an opportunity to kind of start a better one. Okay. Uh, and I didn't like drum and bass that much. I oh, I, I kind of liked it, but I really like house music more. Okay. Uh, but but that already had a thriving scene that we weren't going to infiltrate. Mm -hmm. But drum bass felt like something, we could start a drum bass night on a Thursday night. We could, at the time, artists like High Contrast had just come just come through in Wales and there was a bit of a scene and, a, and Hospital Records actually were a very exciting label at the time and, and this is before I ever went to work for them. I just, we were excited by this young kid from, from Penarth called High Contrast and what yeah. was happening in drum bass at the time. So that was what we decided to do and actually, either luck or judgment we hit on bang on the time when it was having a little moment and that made made sense and we could actually so it's very much self-starting it was very it, nobody else came in and said hey you should try this or no. it wasn't about finding somebody else who was looking for a help in, or anything like that it was very much hey let's do this and see if it works yeah and I, uh, I think that was as part of the charity I worked for there was it was a bit of a music focus to it so the other people were doing musicy stuff but yeah it was pretty much let's let's do that and then I so I did the drum bass night um, for a few years and made some money and then actually one of the, Jared who I started with said to me I remember saying you're you know you, you're a bit too good for this town Swansea you need to move to London because <laughs> and that was a night he's from Swansea so he could say that and I was like you know yeah maybe you're right maybe I need to go if I've, if I've got really real aspirations about getting into the music industry proper so I popped back home to Nottingham for a bit I worked in FOP record store as a Christmas temp nice um because I needed just to have a job and that was 
I don't know, I, I nagged them for that job. I was I told my dad, I'm definitely gonna get this Christmas tournament job at FOP, don't worry about it, I'm not gonna go and do a shit job. I got it, I, I, my enthusiasm, I basically ha like hammered them all the time as about what, when they're gonna hire when me. When was this? So this is 2004, so. Okay, so the so I'm 20. record sales had peaked and we were we were gradually in the yeah not the that I would have any idea of that no stuff. but <laughs> you know, go, going into a, a record store at a time when less and less people but were. fop at the same but but fop actually was booking the trend because fop now is owned by H and V and is mm -hmm. very different to what it was but at the time it had started this um, thing where they would basically buy up loads of albums that people need in their lives you know that are, are, are massive and then sell them for a cheap seven quid five quid. And right. and it was it was popular and so that was cool. Got that Christmas temp job. That was cool to from running drum bass nights and DJing hip hop and big beat and stuff. Then hanging out in FOP, listening to Kings of Leon and Nick Cave. That was quite a good education. Mm -hmm. Left to go to London. My gran lent me two two months rent, which is important that my gran lent it me rather than my mum or dad lent it me because it meant I was definitely going to pay her back because you can't steal off your gran. <laughs> um, but it also part of it was like I'm going to I'm going to make this work and yeah, I don't yeah. want my parents funding me and I'm not that I don't even know if they could have funded me but anyway um, did you think about putting on any nights when you came to well London? yeah so the plan was a friend of mine Dave a guy called Dave Blackgrove had moved to London he was from London but he was like come and move in with me I think originally I'd said come to Swansea and he was like no way mate I'm from <laughs> London you should come to London so I moved in with him in Camberwell which you know uh, is coming up over 13 years <laughs> however it's been but um and the smart thing I did was when I left FOP in Nottingham, I, I, I think it's just a natural thing that happened, that I've done always, but I made sure that they knew I was moving to London and that the, the manager of the FOP store told the manager of the London store that I was coming to London and I was pretty good. And that okay. seems like a really obvious thing to do, but I, just, I don't know why I did it, but I, I was like, can you just phone up them and tell them that I'm moving to London, I'm really good. Mm -hmm. And he knew the manager, they trained together or something, it was just one of those lucky breaks so they had. So when I moved to London, there wasn't a job for me at FOP, it was a bit hairy. Six weeks of n nothing, trying to get a job, nothing was happening. I was just about to have to move back to Nottingham, failed and try again. And then I finally got given 13 and a half hours a week at FOP, which paid my rent. And then I could DJ probably right. most weekends and earn a hundred quid or two, not pay any tax. <laughs> and, and yeah, <laughs> buy just about. And then having had those two things happening, I then used the rest of my time to try and get a job in the music industry. And I realized, A, I could either go to university, and I thought about going to Westminster Uni, or even if I do go to Westminster Uni and do some business music course, I'll probably have to just do work experience at a record label at the end of it. So why don't I just skip the uni bit and do work experience at a record label? Mm I guess the method is, and this is always important, is never forget people like everyone you meet. And I guess we're back here today. Like we haven't talked to each other for a little while, but we met each other networking in sync. And now here we are talking to each other and you're doing this thing. And you're like, I know this guy, I need to talk mm -hmm. to you. So yeah, remembering any kind of break you get or anyone you meet, you, they always can come back and help you at the right time. So it's quite good to, to kind of almost keep a record of everyone you know. Don't I know it. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it, it at the time, I actually genuinely thought this, and this is a delusional thought. 
I really like house music a lot more than drum and bass, but I thought if I go to try and get a job at a house music label that'd be full of really hot girls and there's no way I'll get promoted. Um, I actually thought this. Um, so I didn't bother trying to get a job at like Defected or something. I just thought I'll go straight to Hospital Records. That'll be, you know, it's drum and bass. I know a bit about it. It'll be all, there's no girls there. <laughs> but but le later it turned out there's no girls in house music either, really. Uh, it's quite a sexist industry in general, dance music, but it's, it's, okay. it's, it's getting better, I think. But um, but anyway, that's what I thought. And um, I knew nothing, I didn't know much. And I remember I started at hospital, I was doing work experience there, and I wasn't completely useless, which was good. However, and this is probably really important in my career, I was exceptionally enthusiastic and wouldn't shut up. Mm -hmm. So I remember Chris, who runs the label with Tony, after a while, I've been there not that long, but maybe six weeks or whatever, took me to one side and, and actually just said, you know, we really like you doing some good things, but you are really annoying. Can you just like shut up? Stop asking questions all the time. <laughs> so and that was just- Politely- No, 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 I mean, yeah, in his, in his own way, wow. but it was, but it was, it was very helpful because I think you can be enthusiastic and that can get you somewhere. But you, if you haven't, you need to, sometimes, especially I think young people can misunderstand the culture of the workplace and for them, they could have just sacked me because I'm annoying or they could have said something constructive to me, which is just like, just keep your head down, listen up, don't, you don't know everything. And I think- Well, on the flip side of that, when, if, when, as an intern, when somebody, you know, when the owner of a company, a small company, but a company nonetheless, turns around to you and says, you're great, but you need to sort a few things out. It's quite easy to, that to completely knock your confidence or everything like that. So how did you not bounce back, but I think I was did you probably, just take that on board and go, oh, I okay, think cool. I was probably or just was trying really hard right. and trying really hard to be involved in everything that I didn't need to be. And actually, it was probably more the other way around of actually, you're doing great. You don't need to try really hard. Don't just jump in on every conversation that happens in the office. Right. Just okay. chill your boots. It's all good. And that, it was, you know, it was, it was fine. I think other smart things, I think the, the, the key lesson was really listen a lot more. Learn. Mm -hmm. Think first before you talk. I think for me at the time, that was just, I don't know, I think I was just excitable and enthusiastic and wanted to be involved in everything. Not a bad thing. Not bad, Not no. So the un I think that's why also Chris talked to me about it because the underlying sort of minerals of what I was trying to do were good, but it was just being expressed in the wrong way. Then I sort of got my head down a bit, but, and also, it's tough though, you're doing work experience and not getting paid. So finally after, it was ages actually, probably nine months, I think I, basically at the time, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think now, but at the time, digital marketing, online marketing wasn't a thing. MySpace was just starting. So hospital at the time didn't have any- Yeah, so this is the late 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, no, mid 2000s, like 2000. Okay. I think so MySpace had just kicked off mm -hmm. record labels did marketing in the traditional way on the online world was a total there was forums and there was stuff but they didn't have anyone to do that and that's how I got my break I did some regional tour press for London Electricity Live just trying to hit up newspapers and people in uh, around the, the country just offline back you know work experience kid actually managed to get some stuff into like I don't know the Yorkshire Herald or whatever it might be, the Notting Moving Post. Well, how, or how was that, how did you do it? Just was it just hustling and? Yeah, Googled, Googled the press desk and hustle, found the right person and hustled, yeah. Um, and that really. Was that something that you felt that you had a, an aptitude for already or did you just kind of go, what have I got to lose? I think I'm, 
uh, I think I'm reasonably intelligent. I can talk to people. <laughs> like I'm not, yeah. I, I don't care about, I don't want to do PR, I never have, but that was the opportunity that was in front of me and I just got my head down and got on with it. Mm -hmm. um, other things that I remember doing at that time is we opened the Hospital Records web store and I arranged a PowerPoint sort of print off thing that printed onto this sticker pack. So it meant that we could import everyone's addresses and print off their addresses onto pre-made stickers. And that template got used for like four more years, even though it wasn't really that good. <laughs> but just seeing what was in front of you and taking the opportunity and not, not I wasn't in a box of like, I'm trying to be an A&R, I'm trying to do this. I didn't even know, I mean, I now am head of A&R here at AWOL, but that was never really, I never had that plan. Yeah. I just, I think you always want to just be close to the artist and try and do things with the artist and empower them. That's kind of really what I've got to, but at the time you just got on with whatever opportunity was there for you. So anyway, digital marketing was what happened and that presented a whole world of opportunity for me because you then became the spokesperson for the record label on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I luckily had, I don't know, I think I'm the oldest of five boys. Um, so I've got four little brothers, but one of the good things about that was it meant I was very hard to be trolled because I'm used to being like wound up by them the whole of my life. So being able to deal with the internet and anything that happened with, anything that happened with, with Hospital Records online, I was there at the start and was probably the voice of our label on the Dogs on Acid forum through to MySpace, through to Facebook. And my ability to not get emotional about it was paramount because trust me the artists and the people who run labels do get emotional it's their fucking baby and when someone yeah, comes yeah. online and start, starts harassing them or saying that their event was shit or their track is shit it's very hard for them not to <laughs> want to just have yeah, it definitely for the uninitiated who are who is Hospital Records. So I'll, you're probably best off going on the hospital site for the absolute official version, <laughs> but my bastardized version of that is that Hospital Records is a drum and bass label that started in the, I guess it started in the mid 90s by Tony Coleman and Chris Goss. Mm -hmm. Didn't really get going properly. I mean, they, they, had, they had some good things happen. London Electricity's early days, things were good. They were quite eclectic and did some interesting things. When it really started to ramp up was when High Contrast joined that label, 2001, I think. Um, and then they added to him with people like Scientific Logistics, and then later down the line, people like Net Sky and Cameron Crooked. And they were the first drum bass label really to pay people royalties and stuff, because drum bass nice had always been quite um, gangster, I suppose. <laughs> well, was the label, <laughs> or looking back on the label, was there a culture to it? Was there a vibe to it that was very quintessentially electronic music, drum and bass? So is, the, is there something that the kind of key themes were? It had to be the music. First and foremost, had to be musical and melodic, and actually be songs. Fast soul music is what something Tony used to always describe it as. And then the other key element of that label, which was really important, was was Chris Chris Goss's sort of typography and his eye for detail when it came to artwork and vibe. So Hospital, famous for the H, and the artwork always looked fantastic. And also they were on a hot streak for a long time where, certainly early noughties, people would collect every single Hospital record because they were brilliant. Mm -hmm. But I think they also went through the evolution of every great small label where 
when hardly anyone knows about you, you build and you can be amazing and the absolute darling of that scene. And then as you get bigger, you have to encounter the problems that are, you know, you're getting bigger, more people like you. So your early adopters will start to dish you, but then all these yeah. new fans come in. And over the years, I think up until the point I left, we were, and it, the music industry's changed a lot over this time, but we mm -hmm. were heavy hitting for, for an indie label doing amazingly compared, like, for, for being a drum bass label in the UK, we used to, you know, have A-list records on Radio One. We would have huge worldwide ad syncs. We'd have, you know, big events. All these things. I remember one of the best things someone said to me was a guy called Stephen who works at Warp Records, and he said we've done over the sort of last few weeks we've done a health check on Warp and looked at every other indie in our kind of sector, and for all of them we're feeling really comfortable about everything. Like where you know our numbers are great, Warp smashing it. Apart from bloody Hospital Records, what the fuck are you guys doing over there? <laughs> <laughs> how have you got so many likes on all these things when you're a drum bass level and um, I can assure you it's because we built a real culture and following through that time and since then hospitals probably dropped a bit more underground in terms of the music in terms of shied away now a little bit more from the sort of top ends of Radio 1 and that sort of thing but, um, mm -hmm. but they've evolved their hospitality brand into a massive global events thing and the other thing that was so important about working there and actually put me in really good stead was their they understood that for an indie label to survive, you need to completely diversify your business. And, and so over, the, over time, they expanded way beyond being a record label to being a record label, a web shop, a merch business, a live business, a publishing company, a sync company, mm -hmm. an agency, all these things. So they, they built up all those aspects. Pioneers of and all that, do you reckon? I'd say so, yeah. I mean, they're pretty, they were pretty early to do all that stuff. And they're, they're one of the people now that are doing all those things alone to their detriment sometimes they, they could do working with more people sometimes but you know it's working for them so it's hard to, to criticize it mm -hmm. you mentioned that you were kind of given the digital promo side of things was that just because did you put your hand up and say oh, I'll do that or was it oh Matt I'll do that no I think or I think I got involved in it and was all right at it um, I'm not an expert at detail, so like artwork and all that stuff, I wouldn't be very good at that sort of stuff. But when it comes to writing copy on the fly, responding fast to what's going on, seeing opportunities, I was very good at that. Mm -hmm. um, I was also very lucky to work with uh, one of the guys at Hospital Records who was a director up until recently, he left actually a few years ago, but it was a guy called Tom Kelsey and he handled all the kind of traditional media. Right. And, and he was a kind of Norman Tucker style, Malcolm Tucker, sorry, not Norman Tucker. Malcolm Tucker style um, sort of character in some ways, right? Uh, but but really good. Um, he was great at teaching me a lot. He'd been to kind of London, London College of Communication, so the the degree I missed out on, I could kind of big piggyback on his. <laughs> was he, that would, would would you say that that was the same sort of thing when when you started doing the sync stuff? Because again, that wasn't necessarily something that was always or inherently part of the company. No, so no, not at all. Actually, sync was a much more self-made thing yeah I can move on to that if you want now yeah yeah, yeah. I so mean was that something was you mentioned that you had that the artists and the label had some big successes in sync was that reactive was that proactive did that kind of did somebody reach out to you and then you no said that, that was proactive okay no it was proactive and yeah without wanting to sound like a total bell end that was that was we had no syncs and then I started doing sync and then we got some syncs um bell end or what <laughs> but we <laughs> they'd, had a, they'd had a couple in the past, but what, what happened was, I had been doing my digital marketing, that's been going really well, and we had a hospital podcast that was going great. Sync was a fantastic opportunity for me because 
one of the good things about being an independent label is it's a little family and you get so much done, it's so great and you're kind of, it's us against the world. One of the bad things about working for an independent record label is you get paid very poorly, probably, I'd say, compared to what I probably could have earned, but it's quite hard to know. Anyway, Sync was an opportunity. Tony uh, pulled me to one side one day and, and said, look, I think AIM, the Association of Independent Music, had been going on about Sync for a minute. It became a hot thing. Yeah, yeah. Sort of 2007, eight. like this is a business that people should be doing. I think with the decline of sales, it was one of those things of, the decline of traditional music sales meant that everyone looked to where are the other avenues where we should be making well, money. And also you'd had the OC and Grey's Anatomy and those sorts of things in the previous kind of three to five years. So it was very much a, this is promo and this is cash. We don't have yeah. to pay these people to play our music. They'll yeah. pay us. Yeah, absolutely. So there was an opportunity there and, and Hospital Game, going back to their pioneering spirit, was like, here's an opportunity we've heard about that we're not doing. Someone needs to do this. Who's going to be best at this? I think it fell within my role as just very good at networking and very good at selling, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I guess even back to A&R now, that's still the same role. You're still selling something to an artist and a manager. Of, you're selling a dream to them, I guess. And, and Poetic. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, I mean, yeah, it sounds lame, but it's kind of it, it's that. Yeah. Um, but back to the sync thing. So they were like, can you do it? They gave me, at the time it was really good. I got a little cut based on hospitals. Hospitals revenue on sync, which was nothing. Tony kindly said, you know, if you make sync, you can have a cut of it. Um, and not only that, they actually, they were really great because not only did they say, go and get some syncs, they actually empowered me too. They sent me on the BPI sync mission to, to LA. Um, so, you know. So they backed you as well. Yeah, exactly. So and I think do this and and I think that's really and we important. Won't give you anything extra? Or anything yeah, absolutely. Like that. They they they, they very much. They flew me out to LA for a week. I met some great people there and some supervisors. And actually, it was in America where everything happened because back in the UK, it's difficult if you're a drum bass label. A lot of the advertising people kind of know it all, or they 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 know the UK music industry. They've heard drum and bass. They don't need to hear any new drum and bass. They'll come to you when they're ready to hear it. Whereas in America, if you go out to America and you're an independent label and meet some Americans, they think it's the best thing that's ever happened. They think they found some secret source from the UK. Right. Um, so you'd always get really great meetings there if you've flown over and, and things would happen. But to be said, they, the first six months of trying to get Sinks for Hospital, um, actually two key people in my life that really mattered when it came down to it. I'm gonna go back a bit here. Actually, as part of my digital world, I used to also network and hang out with like iTunes and, and, and people like that to make sure that w they were getting plugged by us. And one person I met, massively important to me, was a guy called um, Kyle Hopkins, who at the time was the key guy at Microsoft's version of the iPod, which was called Zune, Zune. which no one will heard about because it didn't work. <laughs> but anyway, um, just as I got this job doing sync at hospital, um, Kyle Hopkins had become my friend, rings me up and goes, hey Matt, I've been offered this job as like, head of like music supervision at Xbox. I'm thinking of leaving my baby Zune and going to Xbox. And I'm like, Kyle, that's a great idea. <laughs> you should definitely do that. Um, and then within, within you know, a month or two, he's moved to Xbox. I'm now doing sync and we started doing stuff together. So um, you've seen that countless Microsoft games where, where Hospital have been on. I think more recently they even did their own radio station on the Forza game, which is, but that all started back with Kyle Mm -hmm. And in the Zoom days, again, kind of back to the narrative of meet someone in one job, 
do something with them later in a different job, and that, mm -hmm. that was that. The other key person was a, a woman called Sibel Pittis at EA Sports. Now, I'd emailed her for six months and got nowhere, never got anything. I went to LA for the first time, I met her in person, and we did, I think we did fifty to $100,000 of sinks in the next six months. Um, just games, did loads of games. Did she tell you why you weren't getting anywhere on email? Because well, she's probably got a zillion emails like I have now, yeah. and it's like, and it's all about FaceTime and meeting people. Like, if you can meet people properly, that's those kind of, mm -hmm. that's how you get somewhere. Like, definitely, definitely. And, and it, again, goes back to the selling thing of like, or trying, trying to convey an idea or, or get someone excited about something on email or on the phone is very difficult. If you can do it in person, that's always better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was six months of work to get a meeting. I took a meeting and then there you go. And, and I met lots of different people in, in um, LA, got some things going on. I, I pretty much used to double my wages in bonuses based on the sinks that we were doing for hospital. Um, and also the money that you were getting in was, was vindicating the, the investment that the labor was putting into the department sending you to LA. Absolutely, and yeah. I remember um, rather smugly recouping Cameron Crooked's album before it came out. Nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, on sync, which was cool. And then the other thing, the best, one of the best ones ever was I went to, again, the label backing me, sent me to South by Southwest to try and get some syncs on my own, which is quite, if you work for a little drum bass label and you don't know anyone, you hang out in Austin for a week on your own, it's quite that, that kind of, you, it's a measure of you. <laughs> but yes. I knew a couple of people who were sync people, hung out with them, and I met this guy called Gabe McDonough, who was at the time VP of Leo Burnett, which is a big advertising company in America, but he was in Chicago. We met, I think we went with our friend Josh Marcy to see Seth Troxler at some, I don't even know where the hell it was. It was in Austin somewhere. Anyway, became friends and then, yeah, introduced him to this guy and next guy. I was like, you should check this out. And then within a few months, we'd, um, we'd done a $100,000 Samsung ad. Trip. And the rest is history. The trip paid for, everyone happy, all good. Lovely stuff. So yeah, I mean, I've been at, I've been at hospital a long time here. So this was like 2005 through to no, was it, no, was no, it? no, later than that. Sorry, 2006 is when I probably. And was it just uh, you've you, the opportunity came up to just new building, new challenges, just something different? Yeah. So I think, I mean, interestingly, as part of my time at hospital, we'd actually come to see Cobalt about Cobalt subpubbing us or doing a deal with us. So I was aware of who Cobalt were. Mm -hmm. um, we thought they were exciting in terms of what they were doing. I, um, hospital begin, begun for me personally just to kind of done all you're gonna do there apart from take over the label, which wasn't gonna happen. <laughs> um, it shouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it just so happened right at the time when I was just starting to get a bit like what, I don't know, I, was, I think I was trying to become a director and trying to do more stuff there. And I was, they were having conversations about starting whether hospital would just be drum bass or not. And I was keen for it not to be. Um, I got approached by Pete Dodge here at, at AWOL who was saying, you know, there's this opportunity to come and work. A friend of mine called David Emery had, had come to work here already, um, who'd been at Beggars, so it was interesting to see someone from Beggars move to, 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 to Cobalt. Mm -hmm. um, and this was at the, not necessarily the beginning of this is 20, AWOL, 2013. Well, this is so just they, after Cobalt bought AWOL? Cobalt bought AWOL and now they were looking for some key staff members. Yeah. So they hired a guy called Vincent to kind of run it and then they hired 
they headhunted me and a, and a girl called Helen Barris, who was at Warp. And mm -hmm. we were meant to be, we were again, marketing. I was meant to be doing digital marketing. Um, and that first year here was quite weird. It was like, they didn't really know what they were doing with AWOL. I was kind of like, there's all these new acts here, but we haven't got them on any kind of deal. AWOL, just so you know, the deal is 15% rate that we take, and it was a 30-day rolling term. So we, and, and just before I got here, we'd seen acts like Royal Blood and Disclosure be on AWOL and then go and get signed. And it was like, okay. So we've got all these cool things coming through here, but why are we not trying to hold on to them? Mm -hmm. um, and then I had probably time and space and was actually allowed to, because normally if you're a marketing person, you try and sign acts, they tell you to fuck off. Um, I started just trying to hustle and get some things going. And the first three little things that, that really I tried to do, I convinced us that we should sign a single by an act called Snake Hips. I thought they were going to be hot and big. We did, it went straight on the B list and then they signed to Sony Columbia for a hell of a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, and then two others I, I brought in this act called Oh Wonder, who started off putting a track out a month and I was just like, this is great, we, uh, we should be signing this. We didn't manage to get the deal done properly. And then the other thing that was starting off at that point was a little kid called Tom Mish. Mm -hmm. So I started on his career doing little deals and growing and, and Tom then has certainly become the most important artist in my career so far and just of that journey through to, to where we are now. So, <coughs> What is what is AWOL now? It's not label services. No, it's also not no, so an indie label. It's, it was, it's kind it was of an kind amalgamation of, of, of Frankenstein of the two. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it was a distribution company. It, I, I guess what you what we'd hope it to be now and what it can, what it's, it's still evolving is it's ideally the modern record company. Mm -hmm. The artists own all of their own rights. We have a sort of level tiered system of services, depending on what the art, who the artist is. From the artist at the top are getting pretty much everything you would hope for from a, a record label, and and at the bottom they're getting great distribution and pitching and great analytics and data and royalties, but also the deal's super short. So if they're not happy, they don't they're not locked into anything. So mm -hmm. it kind of so end it, the artists tend to have more of a relationship with us than a, a sort of then signed or not signed right. uh, as we do more and we're trying and we're bringing in more marketing people and, and spending more money we need to obviously have a longer term relationship with them in terms of we will sign them for an album and maybe an option on another album if they're kind of a new thing but are you seeing more of that happening now those bands you mentioned royal blood etc coming in well what you're putting seeing an album out and then going in signing ridiculous deals with with other people. Well no, what's Are happening is the uh, is actually like I said what what we've seen with Tom Mish or Bruno Major or Rex Orange County or Kuko is another one is those acts coming in, doing good, doing well and then not signing. Like some of them do obviously, but but more and more we're seeing these artists maintain their copyrights and stay on the on the platform, ha have more and more services from us and get bigger and bigger and bigger and um and and be empowered and I I feel like we're genuinely changing the industry that way. Everyone's deals are going to end up coming more near to how we're working. Yeah. Um, and I don't think this whole thing has played out just yet in terms of what it's going to look like in the future. But at the moment, it's exciting. You know, we're yeah, definitely. It's ethically a very good place to work. We genuinely do have probably the the, the most artist-friendly deals around. And 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 they are. Evolving, they are changing with yeah, yeah. the industry. You're always trying to be well, ahead you're, of the curve. Yeah, well, like you're, 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 yeah, you're, curve. you're in a marketplace, so you have to respond to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and we have to as we've now built from we now have all these artists coming through who are doing really really well so actually we're only going the other way around where we're being more selective of what we would bring into AWOL. Mm -hmm. AWOL's become quite a hot thing especially in the UK of like everyone wants an AWOL deal um, so that's that's a different challenge we need to yeah, make I sure remember, we I remember the message <laughs> that you sent me uh, a while back about the the amount of requests you get to to be on AWOL and how many of them are accepted yeah so we we reject most of them because not because we are nasty people it's more just we want it to be if you said yes to everybody you wouldn't be able to give everybody the kind of service that they're looking for well, well it's, the, it's the scale and service paradox yeah of the, you know, the, the greatest artists in the world need loads of service they're not scalable because they're, they're they're a select bunch I think that's the yeah we we have to operate we operate a bit of a pyramid I suppose hmm. like on the lowest level there are more artists but they're getting less and, it, and that kind of goes up but it the also top. doesn't mean that if an artist gets <coughs> rejected first time it doesn't mean that they can't resubmit they can't go away and tweak what needs tweaking or evolve or develop somewhere else and then and then come back so it's not like slam the door and yeah and, and I guess it. it's a different thing as well we're not trying to we go with an artist on their journey, and yeah. but they're kind of it's their journey as opposed to I think record labels have gone from making records for people through to these marketing beasts. I think there's a few artists I won't name them, but there's a few artists around today where they are basically massive products of the machine, the marketing machine, and you could probably flip them out for a different person mm -hmm. and give them the same songs and the same marketing, and you'd have the same success. We don't do that. We can't do that. We are more about finding these independent and by that I mean independently minded artists who have a trajectory in a career that they want to go on where they don't want to necessarily be told what to do and told how to do it they, they just want great partners to kind of take them on that journey mm -hmm. you mentioned Tom Mish number eight album mm-hmm one of my faves of <laughs> this year. I'm not just saying that because I'm in front of you. Um, you just mentioned you go on a journey. So what what was that? What has been that journey? Let's look at him as a as an example of what AWOL does. Well, it started out as many things do with me having a meeting with his manager about something completely different. Um, and then right at the end of that meeting, he said, "Oh yeah, and I just taken on this kid from South London called Tom Mish. You should check that out." And I was like, "Oh, I've heard of that guy." And after the meeting I went and checked it out I was like oh shit yeah this is really good so we he'd just done the journey I think he put the, uh, it wasn't a journey actually sorry excuse me it was a track called um, <laughs> I can, it's got like Jamie XX little drums in it what's it called memory that's right. what it's called he put that through AWOL and I noticed this was back in 2014 that it sold 600 downloads in a week and that's like that's not crazy but it's actually quite good for a kid from South London I was like, wow, actually, shit. In this this guy, yeah, this guy's got a, an audience. And the SoundCloud number's really good. So then we just did a little deal for his Out to CEP with Carmody. Just a bit of cash. And the idea was to help to get a radio plugger and to try and get Single of the Week on iTunes, which was a thing back then where they used to give away free downloads. And that was it? That was the plan. That was your plan. That was, right, we're going to help you with this one release. We're going to give you a little bit of cash to help out with a few things. And we're, we're going to hook you up with a, with a specific plugger and we're gonna go for this very, very focused aim objective of single of the week on iTunes. Yeah, that's normally, in an ideal world, that's where you want to be 
with new artists and artists in general you really want to be able to set objectives and achieve them and that's how you build up trust that's my philosophy anyway mm -hmm. so that was it and then we did that and then beat tape two was in its sort of it, it was being made you've done beat tape one but that has samples on it it was just a band camp thing um beat tape two was something tom was making and this time he had basically made all the tunes he'd, he'd collaborated with all these amazing artists that um at the time loyal Carner and jordan rakai and all these people weren't really any they were just kind of little sound cloudy artists but now obviously they've become much bigger artists mm -hmm. um and um, that for so for that we were like right duncan his manager duncan murray is his name try and achieve more of these goals let's give you some cash to actually clear the samples and pay pay for the features originally i think tom was going to just put it on Bandcamp. and we're like don't do that let's do it properly put it on spotify i think we can achieve something and um we did that and yeah it started just to go i remember it came out on the friday i think this was this will be i think it came out august maybe 2015 i think then um i remember on the friday it came out I was like, shit, this is gonna happen. So by the Monday I'd rung Duncan and said, look, this is this is going, can we just send Tom some money? So we sent him, you know, I don't need to do any more deal, we just need to give him a, a wedge of money, which was a decent amount for a kid that, you know, probably what you'd expect a year's wages to be for a 19 year old. So not shit loads, but. Enough. Enough. Um, and just like, I know all the major labels are talking to you, I just want you to have money, this is gonna work cool and that was that was what we did so beat tape 2 came out and that started streaming and streaming and streaming and, and gradually i just started to kind of keep up with what was happening with that offer more we had to bring in more marketing offer just basically put everything around tom that he needed and we just about managed to keep the wolf from the door in terms of being able to keep that project growing and being one step ahead of all the major record labels i worked with an incredible um, woman called alison donald here who used to be uh, co-president of columbia records now she's here at AWOL as sort of, um, head of creative across publishing and records. But she at the time was at, didn't know me, I didn't know her. She was at Columbia Records trying to sign Tomish the whole time. And um, every time they were trying to offer something, we'd already done it a couple of months ago through AWOL. So we just kind of okay. kept ahead of it. Until it came through to, to sign the album geography, which was, where are we? Which would have been, the sun it actually was ages ago, 2016, summer 2016. Right. Um, Tom took ages to make that record, but yeah, <laughs> that's when we did the deal for that and, and properly signed him for that, that album cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a long journey, a long education of why owning your own rights is important, you know. And you've built up a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's not a relationship of, oh, we've just signed you to an album deal with loads and loads of options and you can't leave until we say you can no, leave. No. It's, a, it's, a, it's a relationship, it's reciprocal, there's trust involved, you can look back and say, you've already done this for me and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's no big secret, but in, in classic AWOL style, we don't actually have an option on his next record, so we need to re-sign him if, if we want to keep hold of him, and mm -hmm. hopefully we will do that. Um, if when this podcast comes out, we haven't re-signed him, then you can <laughs> find out what <laughs> happened. But, but, but Part two. No, but you know, <laughs> who knows? It, 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 to be honest, it's not, I don't, whilst that's frustrating in terms of you'd love it just to be safe and, and done, it's actually a very healthy place that we as a company need to be delivering for the artists and be offering everything that they need. Otherwise, they could go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and it's empowering for the artists. And at the end of the day, it's Tom's career, and I think that's, I'm, I'm confident we'll resign, but who knows. <laughs> Thank you.
is your role as head of A&R or VP of A&R um, here more on the overseeing the discovery and working with new acts or is it much 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 more in working with the acts that are on the roster now and making sure the albums are exactly what they need to be and making sure all the things are happening on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's an ever-evolving thing because if you think about so throughout that journey with Tom Mish and a few others I and, and another one that went really really well was um, the artist Ray Black who we took from started out and then won the BBC Sound of 2017 which she wasn't but <laughs> but um, that we that went really really well and loads of other things started to go well in the end the Ray Black thing went for we won't discuss today went different a different direction and, mm -hmm. and, and ended up signing to Island Records but we throughout this time I yeah basically gradually came through a lot of changes happened here which meant I my job changed from marketing to A&R basically and then gradually as things have changed I've ended up being a sort of at the top of that with Alison above me but she's like I said across both yeah um, what happened was at, to begin with I didn't have any established acts or any acts that were doing anything so it was all new acts so my new acts were Tom Mish and Bruno Major and then when Alison joined she really helped bring Rax Orange County here as well and now and then the only established act I've ever signed well two now but it was was actually the Wombats um, well I don't not necessarily established acts like the Wombats or anyone like that but rather you know the acts that are signed that are putting albums out so it's so what happens is you you basically the, you're the key protagonist with the relationship with that act and, and the company yeah. so I have a, a mixed bag of, of sort of responsibilities but obviously keeping the, the acts happy and in deal with us in contract with us is important helping them fulfill their records and make sure the records that you know they're, what they're going to present into the marketplace is actually suitable and going to work and that doesn't mean going in and playing keys with Tom Mish in fact with him the A&R from a purely record making sense is actually quite light he doesn't want that he doesn't want people to mess with that which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why he signed to us and not a major record label um, there's that side of things and then also you've got a very internal role of making sure you're championing those acts internally and making sure everyone across the board is delivering from marketing to you know, pitching in Spotify and Apple and those things, and even the royalty team are excited about this, and they're doing their job properly and all those things. And none of those people work for me, but you, as the A and R department, have to be the excitable voice for that artist within the company and get mm -hmm. people excited about it, and sort of, yeah, make everyone feel at the end of a campaign or when think good things happen, like your artist on Jules Holland or they've got a hundred million streams or whatever it might be, that that was worth it, and that that people work harder because of that. And that's, I think, in general, everyone here, whether you're working in royalties or in you know, admin or you're doing marketing or whatever, ultimately they love music and want to be part of mm -hmm. something. So we as the A&R team have to be spreading that kind of, the stories about what's happening around the company, you know, that's, that's important. Yeah. So with all that in mind, what's the most, what's the thing that's the most exciting moving forward? So between now and the end of the year, maybe even going into next year, what's coming up that you're in a position to talk about? I don't know. We're in, a, like I said with Tom Mish, like most of our artists are, uh, are always, they're here and they are ours, but they're also quite, quite unsigned a lot of the time. So Rex Orange County is one that has been phenomenal this past year. I think it's just going from strength to strength. It's become probably the hottest unsigned act in the world. Um, are you going to continue 
those sorts of deals? Or is there going to be a time where you kind of say, we're only ever going to offer one option, but we are going to start No, I think, it, I think it's horses like for courses. Yeah. So on that artist particularly, we will see what happens when he's ready for, to, to go into the album cycle, which should be you know early 2019 is when the idea is he might drop a record. Um, or it might end up being later than that, but who knows? But mm. our, at that point, they will they need to kind of commit to who will be the partner for that record, and yeah. hopefully that'll be us. But if that that would be huge, that that'd be exciting. I think ultimately, what excites me is when the artists you're involved in start to really influence the culture of, and that's that's that is really I think think about what you wanted to do is be part of. I want to be part of the records that are almost back to myself. I want to be, if I, I'm not going to work on the Beastie Boys, but I would have loved to be working at a record label that were working with the Beastie Boys that touched a 15-year-old kid in South Knotts, mm -hmm. you know, a band from New York, who then, you know, sparked something off in me. And I, I, yeah, I yeah. know that Tom Mish and Rex and those sort of artists do that. Young people get inspired by them. Mm -hmm. So to empower them to keep inspiring people is what's really exciting. And that's probably the answer <laughs> and it's a wonderful way to finish thanks for having me <laughs> it's a pleasure <laughs>